1: As President Trump prepares mass pardons, China's charge, a strong final quarter lifts 2020 growth and parlor games. The controversial social network appears to be back online. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to be with you, as always, as we kick off a historic week here in the United States. We've got Donald Trump's departure and Joe Biden's blast off all set for Wednesday this week. But of course, as I mentioned, there's tension amid that transition. An unprecedented tightening of security is underway, not only in Washington, of course, but across capitals in the United States. All the details coming up on the show today, of course, is a federal holiday. It's Martin Luther King Day. In the United States, so stock and bond markets here are closed. The big economic news coming out of Asia, let's call it China in charge or China's charge. The country reporting a world beating 6.5% rise in fourth quarter GDP. Now, all scepticism about the exact number and concerns about lagging productivity aside that equates to a 2.3% growth rate for the whole of 2020. The United States by contrast is expected to see growth fall by more than 3% for 2020. Chinese stocks closed higher on the news. We'll walk you through all the intricate details of that shortly. But it was a mixed day overall in Asia. The South Korean Cosby fell sharply, dragged lower by Samsung shares. This after the firm's vice chairman was sentenced to 30 months in prison for bribery what will it mean for Samsung's business and the broader restructuring efforts? Well, we'll be asking the question later. For now, let's get to Europe, where shares of auto giant Stellantis are rallying on their market debut in Milan and Paris. Never heard of it? Understandable. It was a company formed after the merger of Fiat Chrysler and Peugeot parent company PSA Stellantis. Business, at least in terms of corporate earnings and the Biden administration's first moves, will be Wall Street's focus in the coming week. But of course, We've got to get there first let's get to the drivers Joe Biden's inauguration just two days away yet instead of bunting barbed wire and barricades surround the Capitol, where Joe Biden will be sworn in with 25,000 National Guard troops filling the streets it's been relatively quiet but security
2: fears linger Jessica Schneider has the details Barbed wire and barricades surround the U.S. Capitol under the close watch of the National Guard this morning. The elevated security across Washington, D.C., a response to the deadly insurrection earlier this month. All an effort to prevent similar chaos at President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration Wednesday. Up to 25,000 National Guard troops could join other law enforcement agencies in the nation's capital. And the inauguration rehearsal, originally scheduled for Sunday, was pushed to today amid reports of online chatter. But the Department of Homeland Security says there are no credible threats right
3: now. There is a profound threat from domestic violent extremists of the nature we saw on January 6th. I think the inauguration will proceed, and it will proceed safely, but there will be gatherings of individuals, and those gatherings could turn violent, Uh, so uh, there's a very high level of risk.
2: Some small groups gathered in state capitals across the country, greeted by a large police presence.
3: We kind
0: of looked at everything from last week, some of the chatter that we had heard from uh, the FBI and some of the social media there. We wanted to make sure that uh, what happened in Washington did not happen here in Michigan. So we put a lot more security outside, a lot more visible security. In D.C., police arresting
2: a 22-year-old man near a security checkpoint Sunday for allegedly carrying a gun and nearly 40 rounds of ammunition, as well as a woman Saturday stopped at a checkpoint impersonating a police officer. And with the heightened security close to major Washington landmarks, D.C.'s mayor says she's fearful rioters could target other parts of the city in the coming days.
4: Now, we don't want to see fences. Uh, we definitely don't want to see armed troops on our streets, but we do have to take a, a different posture.
2: This, as more footage from the pro Trump mob storming of the U.S. Capitol earlier this month surfaces. The New Yorker releasing this video showing the trail of destruction left behind by insurrectionists, authorities arresting more people involved in the riot.
5: I went there to support my president and stand
4: up for our country.
2: Among them, Coy Griffin, a New Mexico County commissioner who was detained just blocks away from the U.S. Capitol building Sunday. The District of Columbia Attorney General warns President Trump could possibly be charged in relation to the coup attempt.
3: You have to be you know, incredibly uh, diligent and responsible uh, whenever you're going to charge anyone. The president is not above the law. He's not below the law. Our charge is a misdemeanor, a six-month-in-jail maximum.
1: Meanwhile, President Trump is preparing to announce some 100 pardons and commutations on Tuesday, his last full day in office. Three sources telling CNN that the last big batch of clemency actions is expected to include white-collar criminals, high-profile rappers and political allies. Joe Johns joins us now. Joe, on that point, perhaps the most interesting part of the pardons is what isn't expected to be on the list, and that is the president himself and his family, family members, as far as we know.
6: Right. As far as we know, anything can happen in this White House, as you know, Julia, but the indication is the president is not going to go there by pardoning himself and probably a number of reasons for that. In the first place, if you issue a pardon to yourself, then it immediately suggests that you've committed a crime or done something that you could be found guilty of. Probably the second factor is the impeachment trial that's coming up, up on Capitol Hill if the president were to pardon himself, it could certainly create some heat in the United States Senate where the trial is being held. And heat is the thing the president does not want because no United States president has ever been convicted in an impeachment trial up on Capitol Hill, something Donald Trump would not like to have on his resume. Julia.
1: Yeah, no one wants to be a Allegedly creating evidence of their own guilt, perhaps right in the middle of a Senate impeachment trial. This is a great point. What about the people involved in the Capitol trials? Because a number of them have put out reports on social media, requests for a pardon from the president on social media, saying, look, we were just sort of following right. what he was asking for.
6: Right. Crazy, isn't it? And I think probably the best example of that is a fellow named Jacob chansley He has been pictured in a number of the videos in the United States Capitol. He's wearing fur and horns, and his attorney has said he'd like to see a pardon because the takeaway is that the president invited these people to do that and now ought to give them a pardon. However, if the president were to pardon any of the rioters, it would create yet another problem for him, in the impeachment trial, because it would certainly create a picture of complicity even more than we've already seen, Julia.
1: Yeah, and that's a, a great point. Isn't that the guy that's getting organic food as well in in federal prisons? Fascinating to watch what's going on there. Very quickly, um, Joe, declassification of information related to the Russia probe. What's the likelihood of this?
6: Anybody's guess? Again, the big question, of course, is what's in there. The president has pushed again and again for declassification of information from the Russia probe. But we just don't know, after you pour through, whether it's a net gain or a net loss for the president once it gets out there. And then there's a question of just stirring up the hornet's nest on the Russia investigation once again with everything else that's going on in Washington right now, Julia.
1: Yeah, on the final countdown. Joe Johns, thank you so much for that. So I right, just join us for our extensive live coverage of the Biden inauguration this Wednesday January the 20th. All right, let's move on. China says its economy expanded 2.3% last year. China, the only major economy to see growth in 2020, according to IMF estimates. Stephen Jagg joins us now with all the details. Stephen, what can you tell us about the contours and the details within this number?
3: Well, Julie, you know it's all about perspective, isn't it? This is uh, the last time they saw a number this bad. It was back in 1976 when Chairman Mao was still the ruler of this nation. But as bad as it sounds for China, this is actually, as you mentioned, a positive, a positive growth. So that's something officials here have been highlighting, and also they're, they've been pointing to the positive trend they have seen since the second quarter of last year. Remember, the first quarter of 2020 was abysmal because of the nationwide lockdown. The economy shrank by almost seven percent. But the economy has been bouncing back. Every since with the uh, uh, pace of recovery picking up, as you mentioned, the last quarter, the most recent quarter, it grew six and a half percent. So, this is the, something the official have been highlighting, and also other encouraging signs on the international trade front. The Chinese surplus over its partners, trading partners last year, also expanded. So, the key to all of this, of course, is the Chinese economy was ahead of the curve in dealing with the fallout for the, from the pandemic, and the top down power structure in this country allows the the government to uh, really contain this virus relatively quickly so by late spring early summer last year the country was ready uh, for reopening for business now they have been implementing these policies ever since including pumping money into large infrastructure projects uh, offering cash handouts to consumers and the benefit the economy has received because of soaring global demands for uh, PPEs and medical supplies many of these products obviously made here in China so all these factors Julia are really contributing to this positive growth growth rate for China for 2020. Julia. Yeah, it's
1: such an important point, Stephen, as well. I mean, just looking at the National Bureau of Statistics data, the fact that actually as much as they've tried to push consumption to play a greater role, the government here and their influence in supporting the economy, crucial, actually consumption now 54% of GDP and it was 57, 58% last year. Quite fascinating. Stephen Jagg, great to have you with us. The role of government, both in controlling COVID and supporting the economy, vital. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that making headlines around the world. The Kremlin's top critic speaking out for the first time since being detained in Moscow over the weekend. Alexei Navalny accusing the Russian government of the highest level of lawlessness over a hastily arranged court hearing. Police detained Navalny on Sunday after he flew in from Berlin five months after barely surviving an assassination attempt. CNN's Fred Plankin joins us now from Moscow. I know a lot of people, Fred, and great to have you with us looking at this and thinking how brave he was Mm. to go back to Moscow after everything CNN specifically in reporting has uncovered about what Mm. happened here with the poisoning five months ago.
7: Yeah, you know, obviously, with knowing that he could be arrested as well, because the Russian authorities had said before he even flew back uh, that they are obliged to arrest him once he lands, because there are uh, several trials or several cases uh, that are going on against him. First and foremost, a, a fraud case from 2014, which he says is politically motivated. Back then, he received a suspended jail sentence that has since been turned into a real jail sentence. And so he was detained the moment that he landed here in Moscow. There was really an odyssey that led up to that. I was uh, up, uh, I was uh, out there yesterday at Vnukovo Airport yesterday waiting for that flight to come in, and there were a lot of Navalny supporters there, a lot of journalists out there as well. And then his flight got uh, diverted in the last moment, Julia, to a different airport in Moscow, and that's where he was then detained on arrival. You can see the pictures here of him and his wife, Julia, inside uh, the airport bus going towards a terminal from the plane where then he was taken into detention. What's happened since then has been really fast moving. Uh, Julia, uh, Alexey Navalny was then brought to a police station in Himki in the north of Moscow and he said that he wasn't allowed to speak to a lawyer or anyone else. But this morning, guards came into his cell and told him, by the way, there's a hearing going on against you and that hearing is starting in one minute. And so he was brought into a makeshift room where there was a makeshift court. This wasn't even a, a real court here in Moscow. And there, just a couple of minutes ago, uh, after that hearing, they came down uh, with a verdict that said, and I'm getting this literally off the presses right now, uh, that he is to remain in detention for 30 more days. That happened just a couple of minutes ago. Now, there, uh, the trial for that fraud case that I mentioned before, that was supposed to happen on the 29th. It's not clear whether or not this conflicts with us in any way, way, shape, or form, but at least 30 more days, Alexei Navalny will remain in detention, and he has where his supporters, Julia, have sent out a video message also just a couple of minutes ago where he said, do not be afraid to his supporters. Go out on the streets, not for my sake, for his sake, obviously, but for your own sake. So a lot of things happening here in Moscow, all this a very fast-moving situation after Alexei Navalny returned here to the Russian capital and was immediately detained, Julia.
1: Fred, I'm just looking at the pictures of, of people shouting there that, that we're showing mm. our viewers. What have the response, what has the response been from, from the Russian public, both to his return, but also, yeah. to your point, to his uh, immediate detainment?
7: Yeah, look, I'm, this. Is, this these, are, these are live pictures right now outside of that uh, detention center there in the north of Moscow. Obviously, some people uh, quite angry. I would say it's a couple of hundred people who are out there. Um, and, and yesterday there was a couple of hundred supporters at that uh, at the airport as well, waiting for his arrival. But then he obviously went to a a different airport. The outcry here, and this was to be expected, was uh, was fairly muted here in Moscow. Obviously, not that many people coming out in the streets. Obviously, uh, very cold at this point in time. But generally. Uh, um, Alexei Navalny, he does have a a good share of supporters here in this country, but of course, a lot of the opposition in this country has been marginalized over the past couple of years, so very difficult to muster support for people coming out. He does have a lot of support, though, online for a lot of his videos, a lot of the things that are being posted, a lot of the investigations that he's put out over the past years as well. So certainly there are a lot of people here in this country who are quite angry uh, about all this. And of course, then you also have the big international outrage that's happening as well uh, with uh, leaders in countries from The European Union, the United States, obviously the Secretary of State, and also the incoming National Security Advisor posted statements as well. There certainly has been a lot of international backlash uh, um, uh, from this and some backlash here in Russia as well. Uh, We've heard also from the Russian Foreign Minister a little earlier today, uh, Julia, not surprisingly, he was saying that Western journalists simply want to divert attention from the problems that are going on in the West, so they have the Russian government's take on it as well, Julia.
1: Yes, unsurprising. Fred Plankton, thank you so much for that. Mm. All right, coming up on First Move, A Flight to the Future, the founder and CEO of Air Asia, Tony Fernandez, discusses diversifying from flights to food delivery. And right or wrong, the ethics of silencing a president. Should social media CEOs have that power? We'll explore next. Welcome back to the show. As the number of passengers taking flights struggles for takeoff, one of Asia's most recognized entrepreneurs, Tony Fernandez, is looking for income from the ground. He's steering the Malaysian carrier, which he bought for under a dollar in 2001, into new revenue streams, and that includes the delivery of fresh food from its app. Air Asia plans to generate half of its revenue from non-flying sources by 2024. Fernandez is the founder and CEO of Air Asia Group, and he joins us now. Tony, a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, what a challenge. Great to be here, Julia.
4: Yeah.
1: What a challenge you've set yourself. I do want to talk about the transformation and what the future for the group looks like. But just talk to me about the flying part of the business in terms of bookings, routes. What are you seeing today?
5: Yeah, we're having we're a bit patchy at the moment because there's some lockdowns, um, borders aren't fully open. But what I can say is demand is phenomenally strong. Obviously, uh, domestic is very good. And 50% of our business is domestic. So vaccines are coming out, uh, numbers are coming down. So I think by about the second quarter, we will see resumption of strong domestic and maybe towards the end of the year the international borders will open so but the important thing for me is demand is there there's a massive pent up demand of uh, travel and so we remain relatively optimistic
1: what about for employees tony because i remember one of the one of the promises that you made right at the beginning and you let 2400 workers go you said look i want to rehire everybody what are you looking at in terms of timing based on what you said? The demand is there. We just have to get going.
5: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, unfortunately, I can't control those borders opening. And yeah. you have so much inconsistency. Some countries are easier. Some countries are really tough. Today, we see Australia saying, you know, they're not going to open the borders till the end of the year. But a lot of what we're trying to do also is um, reskill our staff. And a lot of them are being retrained into this new digital adventure that we are we're embarking But I would say, you know, I think travel won't return to, for a short haul airline such as ours, won't return until about 2022. And then I think then we can start looking back at uh, pulling all our staff back. That's a big challenge for me, but it's a very important challenge for me.
1: Do you think some of those border reopenings are ultimately going to depend on who's had a vaccine and passengers being required to have a vaccine in order to enter some Asian nations?
5: Yeah, I I think so. I mean, I I think it's, you know, if you go back in history and you see the days where you used to carry that United Nations certificate with polio and malaria and all these things that you had to take, diphtheria, I think COVID's going to be that. I think countries are going to insist on that. Having a vaccine doesn't mean you don't carry it, but I think um, people are going to insist on that. I, I can't see that.
1: You also reiterated your relationship with Airbus and said, look, we may be cancelling some of our orders, but we continue to maintain a strong relationship with them. Tony, just based on what you're saying and the lack of control over things like borders, the vaccine delivery and administration, is there a risk that you have to cancel more orders going forward?
5: Well, I think delay more than cancel. Um, certainly, from AirAsia's standpoint, uh, AirAsia X is a different story. But an standpoint. Uh, We're not cancelling any orders at the moment. We're just delaying orders. I mean, obviously we can't take planes at the moment because we can't even fly our existing fleet. But we definitely think we'll end up taking all those planes because, um, you know, the 321 is a fantastic plane, gives us uh, much better costs, and I think costs are going to be very important going forward. Um, I think leisure travel will be strong, and the one with the lowest cost will be the lowest fares, and I think that's going to stimulate travel. So we will take those planes, it's just going to take a bit longer.
1: Tony, let's talk about the transformation. In October of last year, you announced or unveiled this brand new identity for, for AirAsia.com and the development of this super app, even down to things like food delivery. <laughs> talk to me about this because this is
5: well, I was, I was delivering food myself the other day. <laughs> really? Um, so look, yeah, yeah, on a bicycle. Um, I didn't quite look as those as good as those Deliveroo guys, but I, I still did it. You're working on um, it. <laughs> I'm working on it. I'm working on it. Uh, but if I, if I, you know, pre-COVID, look, this whole digital revolution, um, and we were a digital company from the beginning. We were one of the first airlines to use the internet to sell tickets 19 years ago. But I think our biggest asset in the airline is data. And uh, prior to COVID, we had started this journey of taking our data and using it to create new businesses. Um, we launched a fintech business, Big Pay, which is on its way to becoming a neo neobank we've already got a million customers and then I said to my guys look if you think people are just coming to AirAsia and not going anywhere else you're wrong they're checking other websites etc so let's become an OTA let's become an online travel agent and start selling um, other airlines and hotel supply so that was the birth of our platform and then with our great customer information and loyalty information plus our very strong air logistics we decided to add ground logistics and uh, be an end-to-end delivery system I think Amazon is an amazing delivery company and whatever you put on top of it is easy because they have great logistics. So we had great logistics in the air. We've added now the air, uh, the land. And so then we've added three e-commerce products. So it's a combination of e-commerce, an online travel agent, uh, which is e-commerce, logistics and fintech. And uh, I feel very optimistic of the future. We don't require lots of cash. Um, we've learned a lot from the incumbents. And I think we can be profitable quite soon. So good start so far. That's one of the blessings of COVID. It's got us focused and uh, we've been able to launch this super app much quicker.
1: How soon on the profitability, Tony? And I I guess for me, one of the biggest challenges I can see here is uh, if we're talking about Southeast Asia, language barriers, um, logistical barriers, Mm. currencies. Mm. There's lots of... Differences when you're talking about the individual, individual countries here, if you want to expand, not to mention competition in each of these brackets? Yeah. What's the biggest I mean, look, challenge?
5: We, we, we've come from that school, right? I mean, we've we created <laughs> right. AirAsia as very much an ASEAN brand. Uh, we, we were the first airline to, to build a multinational um, airline brand, having to deal with currencies, languages, culture, and we did it. So we're battle-hardened. And ASEAN is a phenomenal market of 700 million people, but you're right. It's Can you deal with all those challenges? And we did as an airline, which is probably one of the toughest things. I've got to say digital is going to be a lot easier, in my opinion. Uh, competition, we, we've had that all our lives. Um, we started with two planes um, against all these national carriers, and we became the largest airline in ASEAN. So. We, we, you know, we've been born out of competition, um, sometimes unfair competition, so the digital world is, uh, is, a, is a more refreshing place. Look, talk is cheap, we've got to do it, but you know, when we launched our food delivery service after a few weeks we were doing 20 orders a day, uh, today we did 2,000 orders. So uh, it's getting traction and we're making money actually on all our, our digital properties bar big pay, um, but you know, that's imminent over the next year.
1: Fantastic. Tony, come back and talk to us soon. I want to track your progress. Um, fascinating times. And Please like you do. said, battle-hardened, so you know what you're up against. <laughs> Tony Fernandez. Exactly. Order Fernandez. some food and
5: I'll cycle over to you. <laughs> Take, care. <laughs> yeah. Take care. I
1: better get my order in early. Founder and CEO, Air Asia. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. All right, coming up on First Move, a week of first moves ahead in Washington. The Biden year is set to begin with a flood of executive orders and a plea for healing during this tense political time. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. In a little over 50 hours from now, Joe Biden will take the oath of office, making him the 46th president of the United States. Biden's term begins during an unprecedented time in U.S. history. A raging COVID crisis, a shaky vaccine rollout, and a weakening economy will be top priorities during his first 100 days. Joe Biden also expected to announce a flurry of executive orders and will reportedly move to kill the controversial Keystone XL pipeline. Jessica Dean is in Washington. Jessica, great to have you with us. I have to say, watching the president-elect speak over the last few days, he gets it. There is not a second to lose.
4: That's absolutely right, Julia. They are very clear and clear-eyed that they understand there's not a moment to lose, that they're going to have to work quickly and efficiently and effectively. And to that end, uh, we're learning more about the executive orders that the president-elect plans to sign into law uh, once he assumes office on Wednesday. There's a number of things, many of them, most of them, campaign promises that we heard on the campaign trail for months and months and months. They include uh, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord. They also include rolling back uh, the travel ban on predominantly Muslim countries that President Trump and his administration had put into place. And you mentioned COVID. That is their number one priority. They know they have to get that under control and get these vaccines out here in the United States. And to that end, there are a number of executive orders about that. Uh, They include a federal mask mandate that's going to apply to all federal property where they have jurisdiction. They're going to order that people be wearing masks. They're also going to extend the moratorium on evictions uh, and things like that. Also, student loan payments. They're going to extend the pause on that for people who are struggling financially who can't pay those right now. So a number of things that they're going to do on day one. All of this to telegraph to the American people that they are moving, and they're they're moving quickly to do what he promised he would do. Uh, Now, Biden has also talked about what he believes are the limitations of executive order, that there's only so much in his opinion that the executive branch has has the power to do. Some progressives would like him to use it more forcefully and, and, among, and with more items. He wants Congress to pick up a lot of his initiatives. They're expecting what they call robust congressional movement on this. They're hoping that Congress will take up a lot of his initiatives. He's got a lot that he wants to get passed through there. But of course, Julia, as you know, that's going to come down to whether Congress and the Senate wants to play ball on this. They've got a 50-50 split there in the Senate and a very narrow Democratic majority in the House, and that means there's going to be a lot of maneuvering, a lot of negotiating as to what they can get done when it comes to legislation on Capitol Hill, Julia.
1: And that divide in the Senate, and you illustrate it perfectly there, I think reflects the nation too. And, and mm-hmm. President-elect Biden said all along, look, I'm, I'm your president, whether you voted for me or not. But an incredibly worrying poll, I think, from uh, CNN released Sunday, showing that just 19 percent of Republicans believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected in this election and obviously it follows the insurrection in, in dc that we saw over a week ago
4: yeah it's a staggering number isn't it 19 percent and the the biden team and, and i think most importantly the president-elect is very aware of what is going on and, and all the forces that are at play as he assumes office. And he talked a lot about unity, about bringing together a divided nation. But when you look at numbers, that puts it very starkly, and black and white, uh, what he's up against in terms of a, a section of America that doesn't believe he's even legitimately in office. So they've got a lot to do on that front in terms of continuing to bring people together. You know, and you, you kind of turn to impeachment for a second as well. The impeachment of President Donald Trump, you know, Biden really has kept his focus on assuming office, on moving forward with his legislative priorities and really has continued to say it's on Congress to decide about how to move forward with impeachment, Julia, because he really is trying to walk this very fine, very delicate line between unity, bringing people together. But also they do hold President Trump responsible for what happened on January 6th and believe he should be punished. But they also know they've got just a short amount of time to get done what they need to get done and that biden is going to be judged very swiftly by the american people and if they're seeing changes in say the first 100 days or so julia yeah and only a slim majority of the
1: country believe that the president should be impeached which is the other battle here Mm -hmm. jessica many challenges Jessica yeah. Dean there in Washington, thank you for that. Now, speaking of those forces, Parler's website has reappeared online. The social network went down when Amazon kicked it off its web hosting service for threats of violence by Parler's users in the wake of the Capitol siege. Parler is popular with supporters of right-wing politics. Tony O'Sullivan joins us now. It's back, but you still can't download it from Apple or from Google Play. So, Tony, how back is it really?
8: Yeah, that's right, Julia. We've seen sort of signs of life uh, from Parler. They have up on their homepage a, a message saying that they have uh, that they are coming back. But right now, I mean, you can't go on there, you can't post stuff, you can't uh, read stuff, you can't engage in political dialogue, or as we saw uh, before it got shut down, uh, violent rhetoric and misinformation. But, um, you know, many Trump supporters, many people on the far right, since there has been a real sort of carpet bombing by the likes of Facebook and Twitter on misinformation, on QAnon, uh, since uh, the insurrection in washington dc we've seen uh, new apps like signal and telegram some encrypted uh, messaging apps uh, including signal uh, where people are now going where people are having uh, these conversations and that does pose a challenge because you know when you have these conversations on facebook and twitter possibly planning a violent protest uh, you know that can be monitored that for the most part is out in the open but a lot of these conversations are now happening in sort of darker corners of the internet julia
1: yeah, and this is quite a fascinating uh, point and, and question, Doni. There was uh, data provided by Signal Labs that suggested there's been a 73% decline in election fraud misinformation since Donald Trump was deplatformed. Some, some of the biggest names like like Twitter, like Facebook. That's
8: huge. Yeah, uh- Yeah, and I mean, look, this is to put a this is a very difficult thing to measure. Of course, Um, you know the the seventy three percent number is quite precise. But what I would say is is that you know certainly you know Twitter cut the head off the snake here. You know, if so much of the misinformation uh, on the on the right and the far right uh, came from the top down, it came from Trump. So you know, if if you do take Trump off the platform, that is going to have an impact as well. Of course, you know, last week in just in the course of a few days over last weekend, Twitter removed 70,000 QAnon accounts of course the big question here is Julia why didn't they do that prior uh, the insurrection, why did it take a violent insurrection to see these companies uh, making moves like this Um, so you know there is a lot of answer there's a lot of questions for Silicon Valley uh, to answer and I think you know there's going to be a a big conversation too about the power of these companies I mean should they be able to to shut down the President of the United States is, is the other side of it
7: Oh,
1: that's a great question. And I don't think we've been asking that question enough, Doni. Glad that you are. But your face there was a picture. You don't buy that 73% statistic.
8: Yeah, that's right and I just lost you there slightly uh oh. Julia because we are here uh, in Richmond we're in Richmond, Virginia where uh, there is a very very high security presence as uh, <laughs> folks are expecting some possible uh, protests uh here today and of course um platforms like Facebook we've seen have actually uh banned uh, any uh, any any organizing of protests in the Washington uh, DC area as they as we go into this inauguration week and as uh, as everybody has has their has their guards up.
1: Oh, don't need that old chestnut where you have sound issues when someone tries to be controversial with you. Don't you'll watch this hit back and laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Great to have you with us, Tony <laughs> <laughs> O'Sullivan. We shall reconvene, my friend. Up next, social media's nine eleven. The power to shut down websites such as Parler should lie with governments, not tech executives. Exactly to Donny's point. This saves the EU EU commissioner. Thierry Breton, and can you join us after the break? Welcome back to the show. A new video published by The New Yorker magazine gives us a fresh look at what it was like inside the Capitol when it was stormed by President Trump supporters on January the 6th. A warning we've not that the language, and some of the images you're about to see are disturbing. <laughs>
9: Set up a Jesus! 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 Hey, let's take a seat, people! Jesus! Jesus! Let's take a seat! Hey, Nancy Pelosi. Let's vote on some, We're some shit! Fuck nonsense. Nonsense. We, yeah. we pay for it.
0: Oh, this
9: is our house.
1: No, this is our
0: chair. <laughs> I agree with you, brother, but it's not ours. We're a democracy. It belongs to the
2: vice president of the United States when oh, yeah. he's in here. It's hey, not our, our chair. Look,
3: I love you guys, you're brothers, but we can't be disrespectful. Yeah, don't disrespect me.
8: They can steal an
3: election when he gets in their chair? No!
1: Those images shot in the chamber of the U.S. House of Representatives, the very heart of American democracy where laws are passed, electoral votes are counted, and the State of the Union address is delivered. Our next guest says the riot on Capitol Hill is social media's 9-11 moment, which exposes the threat to our democracies posed by unregulated tech companies. Joining us now is Thierry Breton. He's European Commissioner for the Internal Market. Commissioner, fantastic to have you on the show. Just start by explaining what you mean, social media's 9-11 moment.
9: Well, uh, first, uh, just on the pictures or the images that we have seen. Uh, we have been very shocked, I would like to tell you, here also in Europe. Uh, this assault um, against democracy was uh, really felt as uh, an assault against all of us, including here in Europe. Now, this being see, um I would like to tell you that, yes, on on January 8th, um, social media decided to to ban uh, the president of the United States. It's not a small story. And we don't really understand uh, why they decided they thought they should have done this. But while doing this, uh, obviously, uh, they recognized their editorial responsibility um, and and they reacted to correct what they believed they had to do. And you know that uh, since then, it has been a lot of discussion regarding this uh, famous Section 230 mm. um, uh, authorizing, of course, social media to, um, to behave without uh, regarding uh, what uh, was uh, said on their networks. And now, of course, <laughs> we just realized that it will be a before and an after, because now, after this decision, definitely, um, uh, social media will have to take care of what happened on their networks.
1: There's a couple of things there, Commissioner. The, The first thing is, to your point, social media companies can no longer hide behind this mantra that they don't police content, they're just a platform for engagement. But your second point, and I think it's a very vital one, it shows how powerful tech company CEOs have become, that they can choose to switch off a president, to silence a president. And that's wrong too, irrespective of what he's saying, surely
9: no you're absolutely right uh uh the first question of course is uh, is uh, why uh didn't they do, uh, do this before uh because obviously um what we have seen on January six was probably the result of uh of, of what happened on the social media uh before that uh, that's the first question the second one of course is the one you raised uh is it normal that um a tech company uh, a company uh, uh, could uh, switch off uh, the loudspeaker of, uh, of, of a president, uh, and in this case of POTUS, um, um, without any uh, democratic control. And I guess regardless what happened, and I said what I had to say on, on, on these events, uh, and this is why here in Europe, we have decided a year ago to work extensively in order to present two bills, very important bills, in order to, let's say, organize uh, even regulate uh, our digital space. Uh, and uh, this is called the DSA, Digital Service Act, and DMA, Digital Market Act, uh, through which, of course, uh, uh, we would like to take care of this. While, of course, respecting the freedom of speech, uh, uh, while, of course, avoiding uh, massive uh, surveillance, but uh, 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 while uh, um, giving uh, uh, to uh, this systemic platform, we call them systemic platform, where they are Mm. so powerful, like the one we are speaking Uh, uh, An obligation, obligation to react quickly with specific laws against hate speech, against terrorism, against uh, pedopornography, against many things. And all these vertical laws or bills uh, will be, of course, uh, voted uh, uh, through our democratic systems. And then we give obligations to the platforms to to answer uh, when something wrong will happen. And this is exactly what is uh, um, now uh, to be discussed now. Uh, here in Europe with our parliament, and I hope that we'll be able to pass the bill uh, in the next few months.
1: I mean, you can make the argument that when a social media CEO is powerful enough to turn off a president, it's because the government has failed, because there isn't regulation, because it should be governments that control that versus social media companies being able to pick and choose how they behave. The, the premise of, I think, what you're trying to achieve in Europe is if it's illegal offline it should be illegal online because the spillover effects and what we saw in the capital was a classic example of that. How should the EU and the United States work together on this? Because we're not going to fix this by Europe going alone or the United States going alone. It has to be global, surely.
9: I fully agree with your last comment. And by the way, I fully agree also with what you said because I have been advocating uh, the, the fact that what is illegal offline should be illegal online and vice versa, by the way. And we definitely need to organize our digital space while keeping uh, what is important uh, for us. And by the way, we belong to uh, the so-called free world, uh, United States and EU. And it is extremely important to continue to work together. Uh, we know that the world will be difficult. We know, we know what's happening. Uh, uh, in Russia, we know what's happening in China, and this is why uh, we need to be closer uh, and closer uh, both uh, the EU and the United States, and we share the same value, and here we are talking about our democracy. Of course, uh, uh, it will not be a government uh, which will be authorized to decide uh, what to do. It should be some specific vertical laws, uh, um, and uh, and, uh, this will be done under the strict control of the parliament, in other words, of the people. But again, uh, we will need to keep uh, things which are important. Um, anonymity, uh, uh, no massive surveillance. Everything which has the success of the internet will stay. But now, of course, for systemic platforms, uh, you know, the bigger you are, the bigger responsibility you have. And this is exactly what we we'll put in place. In order to work uh, for our bills, we had a very large consultation worldwide. More than 3,000 contributions including uh, governments, including all companies on the planet, uh, uh, many, many, many governments, uh, and NGOs uh, answer to us and now we presented these bills based on this very important consultation so I have no doubt of course that with the new administration uh, um, uh, we will be able uh, to discuss together because at the end of the day uh, we are very close uh, uh, on this subject uh, in the EU and in the US but we I'm will good. we will keep of course a free enterprise spirit.
1: I'm glad to hear it's definitely time to act. Thierry Breton, the European Commissioner for the Internal Market, sir, will speak to you soon, please, I hope, and uh, track your progress. First moves back after this. Stay with us. The Samsung vice chair, is sentenced to 30 months in prison following a major bribery
10: scandal in South Korea. Paula Hancock has all the details. Samsung Air J.Y. Lee is behind bars once again this Monday after the Seoul High Court sentenced him to two years and six months for bribery. And it was not a suspended sentence. Now, this goes back to a court case that happened just a few years ago. It was part of the huge influence-peddling scandal that engulfed South Korea and actually brought down a president. The former president Park Geun-hye was impeached and she is currently behind bars as well. She has been sentenced to a couple of decades for her part in this scandal so for Jay Lee, the, uh, the Samsung heir, back in 2017, he was sentenced to five years for bribery, uh, bribing an associate of the former president, Park Geun-hye. He then went to prison, but then that sentence on appeal uh, was reduced and was also suspended. So he ended up spending less than a year behind bars. But since then, the Supreme Court said that they believed that the bribes that had been uh, dealt with in that court case had been undervalued. There was more money uh, than previously thought. So it has gone back to Seoul High Court and he is now sentenced to two years and six months. It's less than prosecutors wanted. They had been pushing for nine years, but it's clearly more than than J.Y. Lee would have wanted. Now, the year that he did spend behind uh, bars will will count towards that two and a half years. So it's unclear exactly how much he will uh, be in prison or how long he will be in prison. It's interestingly though, that that he did have supporters and also uh, some uh, some industry leaders and and corporate leaders who were asking for leniency, saying that it's important for him to be free because he is part of the economic recovery post-COVID. Now, this part of the economic recovery is really an argument that has quite often been used in the past when trying to... uh, negate or to uh, to lessen the terms of some of these chable, these conglomerate heads. But certainly for those uh, anti-corruption activists who do not appreciate what was a very cozy at one point relationship between the political elite and business leaders, they will be pleased with this verdict today. Paula Hancock's CNN Soul. All right. And
1: that just about wraps up the show. You've been watching First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and we'll see you tomorrow.